Our first reading from God's Holy Word is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees in me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading from God's Holy Word is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 12 through 20. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, but not, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you have by now heard the story of my father's ordination. He is actually officially a minister in the Church of Christ. 
when he appeared before uh, the ordaining board, and this is for the maybe two of you that haven't heard the story, um, they ask him a series of questions. They ask him, Mr. Westbrook, what do you believe about the Old Testament? And my father was very forthright, and he said, well, the Old Testament is a hodgepodge of human stories that have been put together about man seeking for God. But it's, it's a very human book, and it's a very mishmash kind of thing. Uh, they ask him, Mr. Westbrook, what do you think about the writings of the Apostle Paul? And Dad said, well, he's not a nice person, and he doesn't like women. And then they turned and asked him, Mr. Westbrook, what do you consider about Jesus Christ? And he said, well, Jesus of Nazareth is the central act of everything God is doing in history, which is a pretty decent answer. But then he turned around and said, but he is only a mere man. He is not divine, and to worship him is idolatry. And this ordaining board looked at one another, and they said to him, well, you sound like our boy. You're ordained. So they ordained him to ministry in the Church of Christ, and my father was so utterly disgusted with them for doing that because he knew his answers were not Christian and that he was not a Christian. He was so disgusted with them he never stood another day in a Christian pulpit as pastor ever. He was very much like Groucho Marx, who made the comment, I wouldn't be willing to be part of any club that would have me as a member. He had decided, if you'll take somebody like me as pastor, I don't want to be part of you. And in a way, that's to be commended. But having said he never stood in the pulpit as pastor, that doesn't mean he never stood in the pulpit again. Three or four times over the course of my childhood, uh, they did ask Larry Westbrook to fill the pulpit, and I only remember one of his sermons. It was from when I was 12, and it was on the, the Second Corinthians passage that I just read. It is a famous truism, everybody knows, that Paul had a, quote, thorn in his flesh, end quote, and Larry chose to preach on that idea. And as a student of Lexington Seminary, he had been taught the following about what that meant. He told the congregation, Paul's thorn in the flesh was a moral failing. He was effectively addicted to a besetting sin. He was entrapped by that sin. That was his weakness in the flesh. And then my father went on before the front of the congregation to hypothesize what that sin might be, and he was semi-graphic about it. That was what he had been taught in seminary. That's what he taught them. The effect of that sermon, though, was literally to reverse what the apostle had said in Romans chapter 6, where we read the following. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Effectively, Larry Westbrook got up and said, absolutely. God is gracious. Paul had a sin that, that beset him and he couldn't break free of it. Thanks be to God, that really didn't matter. It also completely denied another of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter, five, chapter 6 and verse 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, covetous, or, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. There is, in the Reformed Church today, a segment of it that would agree effectively with my father's sermon back then and with his liberal professor's teaching of the passage. There is a segment of the Reformed Church today that would say Paul had a thorn in his flesh it was a moral failing. Uh, Paul literally rejoiced in that. And just like him, we should own, identify with, and celebrate our own proclivity to sin because God is gracious. Now, if it were to be said literally that bluntly, most people would reject it, but I am utterly amazed at how very close to that bluntly it is put, and there is a celebration. There is a celebration that God is gracious, therefore sin is not only not a problem, but it is okay to own it and to be labeled by it. Whereas in Scripture, as you heard Paul say in 1 Corinthians, such were some of you, and that's the language of identity, that's a language of definition. You were these things, but now in Christ Jesus, you are not these things. There has been a transition, a conversion, you have been changed from those things, but there is a group within the Reformed Church that would deny that and would say it is perfectly acceptable because God is gracious to own the identity of a sinner and, in fact, rejoice in it. Again, because God is gracious. Well, Paul does exalt in glory in our 2 Corinthians passage, and it is verse 10 where he does this, but it seems significant that when he talks about what he exalts in, uh, these are the things that he takes pleasure in. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, 
infirmities. The word tends to be a weakness of the body. It can be a weakness of the mind, but it does not necessarily imply sinfulness. In reproaches, this term talks about somebody uh, giving you a hard time, especially because you are a believer. Paul will rejoice in that. Um, What is next? In needs, so that he is lacking somehow. In persecutions, which is a more intensified version of uh, the, the former term of of reproaches, and in distresses. These are the things that Paul says he exalts in. None of them actually apply to sinful activity. They apply either to a hardship in this world or they apply to others attacking you because they hate God. When he talks about his thorn in the flesh... He doesn't exactly use positive terms for it. Dropping back to uh, verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Which is not something you use as a label for things that are positive. Satan sent me a gift. There's not a single person here who would say, you know, if that were COD, I would in fact write, sure, I accept. Satan sent me a messenger, and its purpose was to buffet me. Uh, This is not him invading you out to Golden Corral to the buffet. This This is God's servant being bashed. This is being attacked. Paul says, for the devil's purposes, he has sent me a messenger to really harm me. And this is my thorn in the flesh. That being the case, why do liberals in the mainline church, and now a certain segment among the Reformed churches, present this as possibly being sin? Well, their argument is as follows. It is a thorn in the flesh. And the word for flesh is sarx. And without question, that word is very theologically loaded in the New Testament. If you read the New International Version, most of the time, the majority of the time, they won't translate it flesh at all. In the New International Version, they will translate it the sinful nature, or perhaps the fallen nature. Uh, There is some truth to their translation. But it doesn't quite take up the entirety of what the word sarx means. It does literally mean flesh, and it does apply to our fallen nature, But if you look at it all the way through the New Testament and how it's used, the flesh is, and I wrote this as a comprehensive definition, the flesh is that estate of living in the cursed world while having a fallen nature. So it means, yes, you are sinful. While you are in the flesh, you are in a sinful nature. But it applies to everything that mankind's sin has caused. 
the world has been changed, the world has been cursed. Before the curse, nobody got sick, nobody uh, suffered betrayal, nobody died, nobody had setbacks. All of that is really kind of taken into the word sark, so that when Paul talks about the flesh, he doesn't just mean you being sinful, he also means you being utterly frustrated. Everything you put your hand to in this world will ultimately decay and die. Every dream you ever dream will come to an end, uh, and you will have heartaches galore in this world. All of that has to do with being in the flesh. But in the liberal church, there are political reasons why they want to limit it to sin, because that means the great apostle of Jesus Christ is literally saying, God sent me to not be free of sin, and this is to God's glory. And you can imagine why they would revel in that kind of interpretation. But that is not actually what it means, and uh, the reason why it doesn't mean that can be seen by a few considerations of what's being said. At the beginning of this passage, Paul says now, Uh, There was a guy who was taken into heaven. It was a spiritual experience. It was a real experience. It was so real to me, I really don't know if I went in body or not. I might have. I couldn't tell you. But I've had this experience of being taken into heaven. I heard people talking the way they talk in glory. Uh, This is something that really very few people have had in life, but it's given to me. But I shouldn't be boasting in me, and that's why he talks in such vague terms. Later on in the passage, he does say, now, because of the great revelations, I was given this thorn in the flesh. So is Paul talking about himself? Yes, he is. But he is talking about himself in such a way that he is putting the focus off of him because he is saying God should be glorified, God should be magnified, And if I started talking about my great spiritual revelations that I've had, uh, it's going to cause me to be prideful and boastful. And that's literally the opposite of what God wants. And so for that, I have been sent a thorn in my flesh that I might be humble before God. If a thorn in the flesh is a natural proclivity to a certain sin that you wrestle with more than other sins, who here in this assembly would not have such a thorn? Are there sins that you find utterly more attractive than others? As your pastor, I can tell you, there are certain sins I'm really not attracted to. Now, as a Calvinist, I know without the grace of God, I could fall into any sin. All sins could take hold of me without God's intervention. But just from my experience, there are certain sins that I look at and go, nah. And there's other sins I go, wow, that's tempting. So there are things that I find besetting. I don't necessarily say I fall into them, but there are sins that are more tempting. Is that true of you? Are there some sins that, honestly, far more attractive and tempting than other sins? Would anybody say that that isn't true of them? 
by a show of hands. So if that is your thorn in the flesh, literally all humanity, including the converted, have it. And Paul has had a very unique experience. Who here, well, never mind, I don't want to see a show of hands of this, but I don't think that many people here have been caught up into glory to hear the words of God in the presence of God in the holy sanctuary. Very, very few people has that ever happened to. But it had happened to Paul, and God was specifically keeping him humble by sending him a thorn in the flesh, which literally could not be what everybody else had because that wouldn't do it. Paul has had unique experiences, so a unique thorn in his flesh has to be given, and it can't just be, I struggle with certain sins more than others. But that being the case... What is this thorn in the flesh? Paul is writing in a vague way specifically to let you know religion is not about him. Just like as a pastor from time to time, it is my solemn duty to tell you religion is not about me or about any pastor or any religious leader. It's not a matter of men, it's not a matter of heroes, it's not a matter of more saintly men than others. Religion is about Jesus Christ, and so Paul is specifically saying, I'm not going to boast in me, because in me, honestly, there's nothing to boast about. And so he is writing in a very vague way to convey that message, and in doing so, doesn't tell you what the thorn is. Because it doesn't matter. Religion is about Jesus Christ, not about Paul, so it doesn't really matter. But that being the case, there are other passages of the New Testament that do seem to show us what this thorn in the flesh is. We're going through Galatians, and we're in chapter 4, and in chapter 4 of Galatians, in verse... 13 through 15, this is what Paul said. You know that because of physical infirmity, and you'll notice those words, because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, and that word is sarks. So in this particular passage, Paul has already told us something has happened in my body, in my flesh, in my, my health, um, it took place in my flesh, and my trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Very kind of them. Also very painful, if taken literally. Um, why would Paul talk about plucking out their eyes? Well, the natural inference is that this bodily affliction had something to do with the eyes. He was having trouble seeing, at least. And those in Galatia reacting to him out of compassion to him, uh, they would have done anything they could to help him. They'd even, quote, plucked out their own eyes. 
And if you go further into Galatians, which we're going to, if you get near the end in chapter 6 and verse, uh, verse 11, Paul writes this, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. He has dictated the letter to a uh, scribe to write, but, and which was common. But what was also common was the author of the letter would occasionally scribe a, a handwritten little note at the bottom saying, Hi, and this is effectively it. Paul in his own hand writes and he says, Look at how big the letters are that I have written to you. Now, that might be Paul saying, I am writing hugely here because I want you to know how utterly important this is. I'm going to be like John Hancock. I'm going to want the King of England to be able to read what I'm writing, so I'm writing big. But what we've already seen is apparently he had trouble with his eyesight. And if you don't see well, how do you write? Do you write small and tight? No, because you can't even read your own writing. And I can tell you how utterly frustrating that is. I can't read my own writing, but for a different reason. No, when you can't see, you write in very big letters, and it becomes a trademark of who you are. So somebody looks at what you're writing, and they see big old letters. They say, okay, that was written by Paul. And this isn't the only place Paul mentions this. In, in another of his epistles, he says, uh, notice how large I have written this is the hallmark in all my genuine letters. So after Paul had been in Galatia, where he had had bodily infirmity, he had had to stop, and, and it was this stopping in God's providence that led to the evangelization of Galatia, uh, it appears the bodily problem of not being able to see continued. Paul, from that moment on, in through the rest of his ministry, wrestled with not being able to see very well. It was his thorn in the flesh, most likely, by, by the strict definitions of winning proof in a debate. It is not 100%, but the preponderance of evidence certainly says the thorn in the flesh that Satan sent to buffet Paul was he couldn't see where well. You know, this is not a trait that most mission agencies look for. We need to send a missionary to Malaysia. What do we need to look for? Well, we need to find a man who can't see. Let's look for a guy who can barely see out to here, uh, totally, totally can't tell what's going on around him. That's what we need. Let's, let's look for a missionary who can't see well. Right? There's not a mission agency in the world that would do that. When they get together and they say, let's look for a, a missionary that's going to travel at least four times across the known world, let's find somebody talented, gifted, articulate, winsome, charismatic, and wise. Let us find somebody with lots of physical gifts and graces, because he's going to be a missionary. He is going to go out and share the gospel of Christ Let's find the most talented, gifted, and winsome person we can totally get. Right? 
It's natural. In fact, let us consider what local congregations or denominations, mission agencies, or uh, seminary faculties do when they look for a minister in their various uh, fields. Do local churches get together and say, you know, what we need here is we need a man who is socially awkward, uh, he's kind of backwards, uh, he doesn't really fit in too good, he can't see, he can't hear real well, that's exactly who we need to look for. They do that? Of course they don't do that. They look for the most talented person to fill these roles. God took a very different tact with the Apostle Paul. He is Apostle of Jesus Christ. To be an Apostle, he is a special messenger of Jesus that Jesus literally talks to. And Paul will several times tell us that happened. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me after his ascension in glory many, many times and taught me what to say. He is the top of the food chain in ministry. There's nobody above an apostle. And God looked at an apostle and said, you know what this guy needs? He needs to not see well. Why would God do that? It certainly is not the way the flesh works. When I was in the Reformed Church of America, I was assigned to examine ministerial candidates specifically on issues of the Reformation. I mean, after all, it's the Reformed Church in America. You really got to be loyal to the Reformation, be in it. And uh, ministerial candidates would come before me and I'd ask them questions about the Reformation, and uh, it wasn't a pretty sight often. But we had this one guy who was, in fact, pretty well-versed. He knew his stuff. He knew his stuff well enough to uh, really contradict it. He was a young man, very charismatic, very talented, very winsome. Uh, and I asked him... Um, what do you think of the Canons of Dort, which is one of the confessions of the Reformed Church, and it, it is all about what it means that God graciously saves sinners. He said, well, I, I like the Canons of Dort, but I don't really believe in all this predestination stuff. But other than that, I like the Canons of Dort, which is sort of like saying, you know... Um, I, I, I like Star Wars, except I'm against elements of science fiction. I mean, it, it's all about that. That's what the whole writing is about. And uh, that, that was where he stood. He said, you know, I don't really believe that God is sovereign in salvation, but, you know, the cans are nice. And he went before the floor of classes and was examined, and he was sustained. There were only two of us who voted against him. And the reason the majority gave for, for bringing him into the ministry was he doesn't really believe in the grace of God, but he is very winsome, very smart, very talented. We need men like him in ministry. Not, not orthodox, not biblical, 
he, he doesn't have the gospel, but we need men like him because he is talented. He is gifted. What's he gifted and talented for? He is gifted and talented to dilute Christian religion, to give a false witness, to give men a false security in their own flesh, but he is gifted and talented, and they voted him in. If we take Paul as normative uh, in what Paul writes about what God has done here, what can we say God looks for in someone to serve him? Well, the number one thing has to be humility, because Paul writes it in such a way that that's the focus. God didn't want me to be proud. He wanted me to be humble. So the very first thing that God is looking for in a minister, and will even send you a bodily weakness that you don't want. Okay, understand this. Paul is talking about, I didn't want to be sick. And God said, tough. I asked God three times, Lord, don't let me have this infirmity. My will is not to have it. And God said, tough. And the reason God did so was because it would sanctify his minister and make him humble. So if God will do that, we have to assume this is very important to God. Secondly, we need a man of constant prayer. Paul begins his epistles with, I am continually praying for you, and he is not lying. And here he says, when this happened, three times I took it to God. This is a praying man. Prayer takes place usually off stage. It is not something the congregation tends to see, but it seems to be something very important to God. Is this man a praying man? Well, he is in Paul's case. If we take this passage at face value, God is looking for a man who is willing to trust not in his own gifts, graces, or intellect, but is willing to trust in the grace of God. Lord, how can I serve you? you, You've taken my sight away. I, I don't see anyone, and I am called to bring your gospel to everyone. How can I serve you? You have broken me. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace. The grace of God is the action of God in this world, the unilateral action of God where he changes the world, he converts men, he builds churches, he grows the kingdom, his power flows through the world. It's not you anyway. So being blind isn't going to stop that. My grace is sufficient for you. You should trust in that. And Paul says, so I do. If we take Paul at face value, God is looking for a man who will glory in Christ increasing and himself decreasing. He is like one of the last times we see John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, where his followers come to him and Uh, He says something very similar. In John chapter 3, verse 22 to 30, we read this. 
After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in the Aeon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, how much is nothing? It's infinite. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled." He must increase, but I must decrease. I must decrease. It's not about John the Baptist. It's not about any minister of the gospel. It is not about any special ministry of the gospel. It is about Jesus the Christ. We will all wax old and step off the stage, every last one of us. There is not a Christian on earth who is indispensable, God works through his servants, but they must decrease. And the Lord Jesus Christ must increase. It must be him who is given glory. It must be him who is worshipped. It must be his name that is held high. Any servant of God who is going to serve God must speak like John. And Paul does. Paul is a leader who prefers the power of God to the power of man. The flesh believes in man's power. The converted servant of God believes in the power of God. And Paul uses that very phrase in what he says, I will trust in the power of God. I don't have any power. I didn't even see But God is powerful, and I will trust in his power. The truth is, if left to our flesh, we would much, much rather call to our pulpits a Charles Finney than we would a Paul of Tarsus. If you know anything about Charles Finney, he was involved in the Second Great Awakening, and Charles Finney kind of, sort of, I guess you could say, had a heart for the lost. He wanted to reach men who didn't know Christ, but he decided the reason why the church was not reaching men for Christ was because man didn't use the right techniques. If we use proper psychological technique, if we use proper presentation, if we appeal to men's emotions, if we are eloquent, if we are skilled, then men will come to Christ. The problem is we're just not doing it right. 
And so Finney built an entire ministry of revival around doing it right. And the truth is, he was a manipulative so-and-so. And that's not the term that went through my mind, but it's the term that should go across the pulpit. Man doesn't convert anyone, ever. God converts, if men are to be converted, it is the power of God, and Saul of Tarsus trusted God, Finney trusted man. Do you know what the fruit of Finney's labors has become? Do you know what almost all the churches that Finney saw organized now are? They are in the United Church of Christ. Who is the United Church of Christ? They are the most religious, they are the most liberal religious organization in America that will still claim to be Christian. Their motto is, we are the last house on the left. If you go into their buildings today, there are rainbows everywhere. There is, is everything that uh, religious progressivism pushes. Almost every single church Finney ever helped organize is in the United Church of Christ. Do you think there is a connection? The power of God converts. The power of man just coerces. What does it look like when God does work through human weakness? Well, in our our Galatians passage, we have an example of that, and we will turn to it in a second. But Paul talks about it more in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There we read this. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellent of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I wasn't that great of a talker, and I wasn't that great of a thinker. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, Mr. Finney, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what it looks like when the Lord ministers through human weakness. Nobody can miss that it's not the man. It's God. Nobody walks out and says, he was the most eloquent man I have ever heard I am amazed at how well he is able to edify me. People walk out and go, he spoke of a great and glorious God. He wasn't that great, but God is awesome. In our own passage in Galatians, what did Paul describe? I stopped here because I couldn't go further. I was in physical distress. I couldn't see Was his eyes weeping with pus? Maybe, because those around him noted his infirmity. I had no strength. I had no ability. I didn't even mean to minister here. 
But God worked through not my strength, not my ability, not my training. God worked through my weakness to bring you into the kingdom. You didn't look at me and say, I'm wonderful. You looked at me and said, how frail, how tragic. And somehow through that, God reached you with the glory of Jesus Christ and you embrace me as though I was Christ, which seems to think you held Christ very high, um, you would have torn out your eyes to help me because God was ministering to you, not me, and he had reached you where I can never go. That's what it looks like when you minister in weakness. Uh, In both cases, in both Corinth and Galatia, uh, the result was lasting fruit. Now, make no mistake, the fruit was imperiled, and that's why you have the letter to Galatia, and that's why you have the letter to 1 Corinthians. But the fruit did end up being lasting, and the fruit was built on the foundation, not of man, not of man's wisdom or choice or power or eloquence or any of that. The fruit was built on the power of God. When the fruit is built on man, it's built on fads. Do you remember what religion was like in the 1970s? I don't either, but if you think back and you look, you're going to find lots of fads moving through the 70s, and if you look at those fads, you're going to go, that was tacky. Same thing is true with the 80s and the 90s and, and the turn of the century. Man's power, man's wisdom is faddish, it is unenlightened, it is garbage. But the power of God converts, the power of God establishes, and only that which is built on the power of God remains. What should we say? Well, I think that Paul has given us the language that every servant of Christ should say to these things. What happens when God brings into your life something you don't want? What happens when you are broken? What happens when God, who sends every event, lets something come smashing into your life? What do you say? Well, I think we say verse 10 of chapter 2 of of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we say this because verse 9 is as true of you and me as it is of the Apostle Paul. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore... Let God increase, let man decrease, let the kingdom be built on God's power, not man.